grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. What is marriage? What is marriage? It's a simple, straightforward question, but I would submit to you that among all of the, the controversies and the wrangling that we've had about marriage in this country in the last 10, 20, 30 years, behind all of that, I think, is an answer or attempts to answer this simple question. What is marriage? And there's not one answer out there. There's multiple models, although they're rarely laid out and set alongside one another. And Let's just think about this for a second. I would say that the, the most popular, the most common vision or model of marriage is what you might call the personal contract model of marriage. The personal contract model. And what I, I mean by that is that in a personal contract model, it's basically uh, just another way that you can reach self-fulfillment is through a contract that you make with another person. The basis of it is really the emotions, okay? If you feel strong emotions toward another person, that's all the, all the basis, all the foundation, all the justification that you need for a marriage. It has a very strong companion sense. And these are not bad things, of course. But are these the whole of a marriage? I'd say, well, definitely not. And yet in our society today, this is the prevailing view. You marry someone whom you love, or perhaps multiple someones whom you happen to love. That kind of thing is already being bandied about, the possibilities of it. Because if it's all founded in the emotional union, there's no reason that it couldn't be more than one person even. But this is a common prevailing view even, I would say, in our society of what marriage is, a kind of personal contract. But there's another view that goes further. You might think of this as the family covenant view, the family covenant view, which takes that companion side of it from the, from the personal contract, which is meet, right, and salutary. It's very appropriate. And it goes further. It says, no, this isn't just a contract. It's a covenant. This is a bond that we make and that is, is unbreakable. It is founded not just in emotions, but also in vows and promises that we make to each other and perhaps even in the sight of God. And it's oriented not just toward personal fulfillment, self-fulfillment, but also toward procreation, right? Toward uh, the generation of children, handing down the, the human patrimony from one age to the next. This, too, is a, a, a common view, although I would say less common. It's especially among religious people you have more an idea of the family covenant marriage. But truly Christian marriage encompasses both of these views. It has that emotional side to it, the, the companionate side to marriage, as well as the covenant and the family bond side to it and the, the orientation toward the, rearing, uh, the bearing and rearing of children. But it goes even further, see. According to Christian marriage, marriage is a divine icon. It's a divine icon. What do I mean by that? As the scriptures teach it, and especially St. Paul in today's passage, marriage is a glimpse of the gospel itself. It's, it's a window into the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. I know what some of you are thinking already. Well, not my marriage or not many marriages I've known have looked to be that clear of a presentation and a window into the gospel. And hey, listen, I'm with you and we'll get to that. But marriage, as God has ordained it, and indeed at its very best even in this age amidst all of our, our sinful dealings, is a glimpse of the gospel 
a window into what St. Paul calls the mega mysterion, the great mystery, which is the relationship of Christ and the church. And so today what I want to do is, as we walk through this passage, to look at it through this lens, how Christian marriage is a window into the relationship between Christ and his church. How marriage, as God has ordained it, how he has created it, provides us with a picture of his relationship with all of us, married or not, as we belong to him. Sound good? I know it's hot. I'm sorry, guys. The air conditioner is just not working. So like I told Yolan earlier, if you get too hot, walk outside where it's even hotter and then come back inside where it's cooler and you'll feel good. Or just look at me. I've got three layers on, so just bear with me here. Go ahead and pull out your uh, worship folder when you're not using it as a fan, if you like, or you can grab the the Bible as well. And we're just going to walk through this passage. And Paul starts out scandalously, (laughs) you know, great controversially here. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You know, every pastor has had this conversation. We've got some pastors in the congregation here tonight. Every pastor has had this conversation when you're sitting down for premarital counseling and the, you know, the bride and, and uh, groom-to-be, they come in, and say, okay, this is how we want it to be. This all sounds really good. Yeah, we'll have some Jesus in there, but there's just one thing, all right? I don't want to hear any of the submission talk in there, all right? I'm not a cave woman. I don't need you to tell me to submit. Actually, I was just reading with the kids the Little House on the Prairie books from the 19th century, okay? You don't think of Little House on the Prairie as a bastion of progressivism. Within the Little House on the Prairie books, Laura, as she's about to be married to Almanzo, she says, now just so you know, I'm not going to be talking about obeying you. I was like, whoa, already? So this is not something new. If you read that, you heard that, and you're like, "Mm mm-mm, pastor, don't go there. That's not a new thing. But let me show you why submission, as Paul's talking about it here, is actually a picture of the gospel. If at the end you still disagree with me, that's fine. But I want to lay out for you at least, because this is something that I think is is often misunderstood or, or misappropriated. So what do the scriptures mean when they talk about submission? Let me give you a simple definition. Submission is slotting into God's gracious purposes for creation. Submission means slotting in to God's gracious purposes for creation. In other words, it's not about value, it's about vocation. It's not about your inherent worth as a human being, as if to say, if I'm submitting, it means that I am somehow inferior to another person. That's not the point, as the scriptures talk about submission. Rather, it's about calling It's about finding our place where God would have us so that we can best serve as he has ordained it. It's slotting into his gracious purposes for each and every one of us. And indeed, it's right there in the the etymology of the word itself. Submission, submissio, literally under the mission. To to, uh, participate in submission, to submit, is to locate ourselves under the mission of God in the places where he has put us. Does that make sense? The big point there is that submission is not about inherent value or worth. It's about vocation, calling, where God has placed each and every one of us. And here, Paul is talking about for women, OK? 
Okay? Women, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Say, I'm just not sure how I can do this. But recognize, as we alluded to last week, Jesus himself submits in this way. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, says that Jesus, not only in this life, but also at the end of time, that he submits in all things to his Father. So hear me now. If Jesus submits to his heavenly Father, it can't inherently be something that is undignified or that is degrading to you. If Jesus submits to the Father, for a wife to submit to her husband is a glorious good thing. There's nothing about it inherently that would degrade you or or debase you or put you down at some lower level. Now, I grant that in many ways that it's talked about in today's culture, it sounds like a very degrading thing. The way that we talk about it and we use just kind of crude language, yeah, it can absolutely be. And, And let me just say that when we talk about this submission, it does not mean just some capricious domineering from the husband, okay? This kind of submission doesn't mean that the husband always gets to hold the TV remote or dictate what's for dinner. You with me? That's not what this is talking about. This kind of submission of slotting into God's gracious purposes, it pictures the husband as the leader of the family mission and the wife joyfully, willingly following with him. It's a very different understanding, isn't it? Now, are husbands always doing a great job with this? No, of course not. And Paul's going to have a lot to say to husbands here momentarily. But the, the main point with this first movement of it is he's talking about, he's saying, look, as Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of the wife. But you know what the wife is? She's the heart, see. The husband might be the head, but the wife is the heart. Is one more essential than the other? Is one more vital or important than the other? No. We need both. It's not about value. It's about vocation. Slotting into God's gracious purposes. And you know that this is true. You've seen it and perhaps experienced it as well. That when this is working well, when husbands and wives both understand, when the husband is leading well and the wife is submitting to that leadership of her husband, it's a beautiful thing. And it witnesses to that gracious relationship of our Lord with you and me. Now, if you want to pick a fight about submission afterward, we can have that conversation. Happy to do it. I'm just a messenger here, right? I'm sharing what the Scripture is teaching us here. I hope that helps to clarify somewhat what the Bible is talking about when it talks about submission. But now let's get to the guys. Because Paul, he's got a lot more to say to the husbands than he does to the wives. He turns in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now this, I think, runs right in the face of all of the mixed and muddled messages that we men get in our society about what marriage ought to be. On the one hand, there's the the picture, kind of the Jerry Maguire picture. You remember this movie, Jerry Maguire? His famous line in it is, you complete me. And from this perspective, marriage is a security blanket, all right? You are my soulmate, and I I need you. You are my security blanket. But then, I think more commonly uh, for men, marriage is viewed not as a security blanket, but as a wet blanket, all right? How do guys talk about it sometimes when they're at the bar, when they're shooting pool? Oh, how's the old ball and chain? I hope that I never, ever hear that way of speaking from God's people. It's abomination, see. 
Well, it's all too common in our world today where the, the wife, the, the marriage relationship is viewed not as a security blanket, but as a wet blanket, something I wish that I could avoid. In the midst of these muddled, mixed messages, we have a clear, coherent picture for you and me. No, marriage is not a ball and chain. It's a cross, see? It bears the shape of the love of our Lord Jesus, who came for us loveless, love to the loveless shown that we might lovely be, laid down his life in order to make out of all of us beasts to turn us into beauties, see? That is the sacrificial love of our Savior. And that, Paul says, is what it ought to look like for the husband to love his wife. Is that a high bar? You better believe it. This is what he's calling us to because this is the love that all of us have received in Christ Jesus, that kind of sacrificial love. So what does that mean for us men, for us husbands, in our relationships? Well, I would say that it means that, first of all, you see your wife like Jesus sees your wife, and you, for that matter. And how does Jesus see her and you? He forgives your flaws, and he celebrates your features. He forgives your flaws, see? He looks at you and me and all of our mess, and he forgives it, right? He pushes it aside. So also as husbands, we forgive the flaws of our wives. Okay, the cookies were burned, that's all right. We celebrate the two that weren't burned, and we break bread together. We enjoy, wow, hon, thank you so much. You are so thoughtful to be baking cookies for me, right? We forgive the flaws, and we celebrate the features. That's what we focus on, even as our Lord looks at us. So we see our wives as Jesus sees us, and we serve our wives as Jesus serves us. Not just in the big ways, but in the little ways, in those everyday ways, we serve our wives. You may have heard me tell the story before of a, a man named Rich, and this was many years back, but Rich and his wife, Doris, they've been married a long time. I'm, I can't recall how long it was, but I've often asked, and I've, I've probably asked some of you when I, I meet a couple that's been married a long time, I say, what's the secret? Right? What's, the, what's the secret? And I'll never forget what Rich said as he's looking at Doris. He says, I always give her the last piece of pie. <laughs> I always give her the last piece of pie. And that, to me, spoke of those small ways that husbands, we serve and sacrifice for our wives. We lay down our lives for them, so as Jesus laid down his life for us. In this way, when husbands sacrifice for their wives in this way, they bear witness to the sacrificial love of the Savior. They provide a window into that great mystery of the spousal love of our Savior. So we've talked about how the gospel is, is testified to through the, the submission of the wife, through the sacrifice of the husband, and what about with the couple together? And here we see, I think, why the scripture makes such a big deal about our union being a one flesh lifelong union. People ask this, why does it matter that it's one husband, one wife for one lifetime? Why can't we mix and match? And why can't we decide that it's gonna be a longer or shorter amount of time? 
And the reason is it's not just some arbitrary sort of thing. It's not just some capricious decisions by uh, whether it be by the scriptures or by you know, the pastors, priests through the ages. No, it's bound up in the very sweep of the whole scriptural narrative where we have seen God's ultimate design is to unite all things in him. This is his deep desire to overcome differences and to make atonement. And see, husband and wife, that one flesh union becomes a kind of microcosm of that atonement. As these differing people, man and woman, are now brought together, grafted together into a one flesh eternal union. In that way, it's a picture of the lifelong union that God has wrought. Even as it says, it depicts it at the end of the scriptures in Revelation chapter 21, we see the new heavens and the new earth, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. See, the final picture, the consummation of all things is of this union of two unlike things now brought together. That's why it matters that husband and wives, different by nature, are now united in this one flesh bond, and not just temporarily, not just so long as it serves them, but forever. This is why divorce, when it happens, is not just like dissolving a contract. It's more like amputating a limb. It's not the way that God meant it to be. He's created us for one another and forever. And I'll just leave you with this thought from another couple I got to know many years ago while I was serving as a missionary, Bob and Betty. And Bob and Betty had been married for close to 60 years at this point. And it was before Ann and I were married. We were courting at that time. And I was expressing to Bob some of my consternation, just thinking about, oh, I'm just worried about you know, the love growing cold over the years and how that's gonna work. And Bob says to me, he says, you know, I remember when when Betty and I were going to be married, I thought that it was going to be like pouring hot soup into a cold bowl, and it was just slowly going to cool off. But he said, I've discovered that it's more like the cold soup in the pan that's slowly warming up. And he said, I love her more today than the first day we met. It's a beautiful picture and reminder of what marriage ought to be. But do we fail? Do we fall? Does divorce happen? Of course. Even within our marriages, we love one another, but there are days where we struggle with each other. In the midst of all of our flailing and all of our fickle loves and our faithfulness and unfaithfulnesses, we can wonder who is going to be faithful through it all. Who is going to be able to endure and to stand fast? Who does that? And our Lord Jesus stands up before all of us failing sinners and says, I do. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess our faith.